Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. You're tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour, and we're joined by Shelby Kennedy, and he's worn a lot of hats. Songwriter, he's worked in the business side of music as well. He's signed many great songwriters to both ASCAP and BMI. As a songwriter, his songs were recorded by everyone from Reba McIntyre and Mel McDaniels to Ray Charles. He's the Vice President, Entertainment Relations for TuneCore, and TuneCore is a service that provides independent musicians and songwriters with tools to distribute their music. And in the recording studio, he's received credits as a producer and as a background vocalist. Shelby Kennedy is also unique on this show in that although I have interviewed three brothers in the past, I have never interviewed three brothers and a son of a past guest. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, thanks for confirming that, Paul, <laughs> that, that Jerry Kennedy is my father. That's awesome. <laughs> With all the things that we listed there that you've done in the music business, what would you say that your greatest talent or ability is? Oh, wow, Paul. First of all, let me just thank you. It's an honor to have the discussion with you, and I love the Paul Leslie Hour, so thank you for the opportunity. When I sit there and think about all the hats that you wear, you know, or, or that I've been blessed with the ability to put on my head, I don't know. It seems like the thing that I, I enjoy and maybe I hope I do best is actually help others. So even though there's a lot of creativity going on, I feel like I'm, I'm always trying to be that map at the mall for people. And, and, and it's kind of like, you know, where you want to go has everything to do with where you're at now. And everybody's path has to be different. I think traveling different paths throughout my career helps me at least see or help other people navigate what they're trying to do. So I think all the hats basically have trained me to help others so I've seemed to uh, take advantage of that opportunity wherever I've been to help others. Uh, I think that's part of my purpose for doing everything that I do. I don't know if that makes sense. I, I love doing everything, and and uh, we can talk about that a little bit too. But the thing I like most is is helping people figure out their path hmm. in their career. Yeah. Now, what got you in the mindset? of this service-oriented ideal that, hey, what I most want to do is I want to help people. Well, I think, you know, anybody that's in the industry for any amount of time, they're not going to deny that somebody has helped them along the way. And every one of us have had people reach out to us probably that didn't have to, but they wanted to. And I think it, it kind of it comes natural. This is one of the few environments in which we can help mold the climate that we work in. So naturally, I want to work with people that are passionate and that know what they're doing. So if I can help them know what they're doing, it's going to be easier for me and everybody else to work with them too. But it's, I, I don't like to see people spin their wheels trying to do what others have done just because they heard that's what others have done. I think that when it comes to talent and it, it comes to creativity, unique deserves unique. And I think that the planning 
has to be as such. It's not one blueprint that everybody, you know, tries to follow. Uh, It should be, you know, every blueprint should be really different from the other. Mine was. So I know everybody else's should be as well. You know, I heard this little clip or I watched this little clip on YouTube where you were saying that the things that you plan it maybe won't work out, but a lot of times the things you don't plan are the things that really, really do pan out. Well, thank you for saying that, Paul. I'm, you know what? I preach that every day. I, and I don't know that this is just for the music industry, but I will say this, and, and I know you probably got this feeling from talking with the family, but I come from a, a strong spiritual background as well. I do think there's divine intervention, but I will say this for everybody. When you look over your shoulder at the best things that happen in your life, none of those things would have been planned by you. <laughs> and, they're, and they're not. It's like, I really, I can't explain it, but it's, um, well, I try to explain it. I, th- I think that we all set a target that we want to hit. And as we approach the target that we set out for, we'll start seeing little hallways off of the of the path we're walking we never would have seen unless we were aiming at a target but those paths take us into another direction sometimes so you don't even see where you're going you think you know where you're going but you don't see where you end up and where you end up uh, there's a lot of cool places that you end up and and i do think that the best things that happen they're not planned by me and paul if we want to talk about my plans I am not going to do that. They don't, they don't sound so good. So it's, it's the divine intervention, if you will, you know, that, that I think that, that comes into play with all of us. You know, anybody, they got a big award, they got a, you know, a big success. Chances are they were aiming to do it a different way. And thank goodness and thank God, literally, uh, it happened a different way. Hmm. Now, you were mentioning a moment ago about the fact that you're your family, that I might have picked up a spiritual background, and I did. But I'm hoping for our listeners, you can describe the Kennedy household when you were growing up. What was it like? A museum. (laughs) No, it was like, this is, I tried to explain this to some people, and I think, just so everybody understands, so I have a lot of respect for him, and of course, me and my brothers very much do, and our mother as well. But what was funny about being in the sibling order, I'm the youngest. So a year and a half older than me is Brian Kennedy, and a year and a half older than Brian is Gordon Kennedy. So, so for me to go from the oldest is house our individuality. If you were walking down the hallway of our house, you would have hit my bedroom first. You would have heard more R&B and urban music blaring out of that room. Then when you get to Gordon's room, okay, it was going to be more of the rock stuff that he was into. And then when you hit the very end of the hall, you were hearing like Hank Williams kind of country coming out of Brian's. And it's like, it was just like this museum, but we all had our individuality. We, we liked all music, but I think we gravitated towards what made us feel, you know, unique aside from the others. And I don't know if they would feel that same way, but we had every musical influence in our house and, Actually, that's the one thing I hope a lot of people do today. I hope that they draw from different 
places when they're creating music because that's what makes it really unique and, and really fresh you know it's it's when you mix all these genres new things happen there's new sounds there's new artists and there's new songs um but in our house obviously our father was you know producing country greats and the thing that i love about what our dad did dad let us be us let us be individuals he never criticized anything as a matter of fact i think he just encouraged you know it's like he loved us chasing what we loved musically we had free reigns um it was it was great it was a great place to grow up musically for sure earlier we were talking about plans and you were saying you didn't want to talk about all of the plans <laughs> but just just to tell the listeners out there when you were first coming of age and you were you were deciding on what you wanted to do for a career what did you originally plan for yourself? What was your dream? Now, this is going to, I'll be honest with you. I'll tell you uh, something that's wisdom followed by really what my path was. So I, I grew up here in, in a suburb of Nashville, Tennessee. It's called Brentwood. And I, after graduating high school, the head football coach, and, and it was a football school, basically, he asked me if I would coach the position I had played to help out because the previous coach had to leave coaching this position, defensive ends. So for two years while I was in college, I was an assistant football coach at this, at this high school. My plan was to graduate, come back and be a full-time teacher coach. After the second season we had, which they were very successful, I had to do an internship while I was going to Belmont University and I went to a publishing company, a publisher that's very famous too, Al Gallico. And he had a publishing company. He was friends with my mom, my dad, and, and he, he's got a lot of legendary people that were in his office. But he let me come intern there, and um, I never got back to the football thing again because I was, as he even said, just be one of the guys. And I was like, what do you mean? Do you want me to pitch songs? Hey, just be one of the guys. Do you want me to work the tape room? I mean, just be one of the guys. It was like he was empowering me to just be one of the guys and these guys paul it was billy sherrill had written for him and glenn sutton had written for him naro wilson had written for him and danny darst and john anderson and lacey j dalton and tammy one there's like all these greats and he just wanted me to be one of the guys and i thought how empowering that was now the wisdom part i want to give you so i was about so i'm there for a couple of more years I'm about to graduate college, and I'm sitting in a room with Billy Sherrill, which hopefully some of your listeners know, this man's a legend, you know, and iconic. And, and a lot of people didn't get to know him or get to see him, but we were sitting in the room, and he said, what's, what's bothering you? And I said, Billy, I'm, I'm about to graduate, and I don't really know what I want to do. <laughs> and, he's, and he said, he goes, Shelby, he goes, I don't know what I want to do yet. And I said, Billy, you're back in the studio every day, you know, producing records. And he said, well, don't forget, I'm a studio pianist. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, and don't forget, you know, all the BMI awards. And Paul, I think he's got the record for the most BMI awards. I think it's like 84 or something. And I said, <laughs> yeah. And he goes, he goes, don't forget, I'm a publisher. You're working here, aren't you? You know, and it's like, yeah. And he goes, well, don't forget, I ran CBS Records for, I don't know if it's 14, 15 years or something. And he kept going on, and I'm thinking, he's smart, Alec. You know, it's just kind of <laughs> like this is an opportunity to brag. And But you know what he was saying, and this is the wisdom. 
And this I, I lived with from that day forward is what I learned was if you decide exactly what you want to do, there's a whole lot you will not. And that has stayed with me throughout the career. And I tell people this all the time is if you decide on something, there's a lot of stuff you're probably not going to do because you just took it off the table. And I think that if you have these gifts, I think you're supposed to use them. And that's what makes everybody unique. And I mean, I can go on that for days, seriously, but I try to tell people that all the time because everybody thinks they should be, um, you know, good at one thing. And they may have been created to do quite a few things. So... Anyways, that's that's kind of how my path started um, and kind of got, it seems like it might have gotten scattered, but actually it got dialed in <laughs> to know to do a lot of things. Hmm. Yeah. Probably a difficult question, but who would you say taught you the most about the music business? You're right. That's a difficult question because uh, there's been so many people that I respect and admire when it comes to the music business. And you know what, Paul, a lot of it's by example. It's not necessarily sitting down and teaching, you know, as much as just being able to be close and observe. But I can't say my, you know, my father's, he's exhibit A. I mean, that's, that's a different deal. Look, this guy was as creative. He was a giant creatively, you know, with, with all kinds of skills. But he had to be a little left brain, a little right brain. He's running a label, you know, and he's producing and he's also playing and, and he's written. And so, I mean, there's talk about osmosis. I, you know, I, I prayed for osmosis. That was great. So, I mean, it's got to be it's got to be there if I have to pick one outside of that. Oh, there's there's so many. There's so many. And, and I, I hope and pray I can be one of those to somebody else. You know, because it really, it leaves quite an impression. But to be around, I've, I've been blessed to be around people like Billy Sherrill. He's a myth to a lot of people. They really didn't get to see him. He was, Billy was not a people person. So just to be around him was great. I'll tell this one little funny story. When I first started for Gallico back there, and Al came to town after I was in the office for a few months, and we walked out on the front porch of this business. And actually the the place we read is where Bob Dole that manages Garth Brooks, where his office is now. But we walked out on that front porch and Al Gallico said, you know, he said, Shelby, I talked to Billy and, you know, to see see how you're doing. And I was kind of, you know, he said, Billy, he goes, he he really likes you. And I'm thinking, well that's that's nice. And he goes, no, he goes, Billy really likes you. And I thought, okay, well I'm, I hope and and then he paused. He goes, look, you don't understand. He goes, Billy doesn't like people. <laughs> it, was like, it was like out of a movie. And, um, and it wasn't that Billy didn't like him. Billy was just like an introvert. He didn't go in, in a, you know, where people trafficked. You know, It's like he stayed off to himself. So I've just been blessed to be around a lot of people that are just giants, you know, as far as their contributions to our industry. Where and when did the songwriting start for you? Man, that started back in high school, actually. Just, it's probably like some people like working crossword puzzles, right? For me, it was just like, hey, I want to put together these puzzles that are songs. You know, and just, I had this like two-track recorder. It actually was my dad's. 
reel to reel. It could be right channel, left channel. And I learned how to ping, you know, just like put a guitar down on the right channel and then record on the left channel as you sing along with what you played previously. And then those two things go back to the other channel and add a harmony part. And then, you know, you just kind of keep going back and forth. And that's kind of how I learned. I think I wanted to write so I would have something to record you know, that I could play, because I never was a great player. I just, you know, it's horrible probably, but I play enough to write. I'm not the musician that, you know, I grew up around. But it, it started back in high school, and then it just kind of went through college, and then it just, and for me, Paul, it was always something to enjoy. It was never a job. I never wrote for a publisher, you know, as a signed deal. I wrote because I enjoyed the company of, of who I was writing with, and it was just great. So for me, it wasn't so much the professional approach. Mine was the pleasure approach. And I just got blessed because of it. Again, none of that was planned. It was just, I was just, you know, picking up a tool that I was blessed with and, and, and just using it and just kind of, you know, seeing what would happen from there was bonus. Now, is it true that the first person to record a Shelby Kennedy song was Ray Charles. Doesn't that sound impressive? <laughs> it's like, it is not planned. That was a huge blessing. And yes, that was the case. Again, rewind back to that time. I'm working for Billy Sherrill and Al Gallico. Gary Gentry was a great songwriter. Gallico had, he, he had several hits. He and I had written this song and Paul, we really wanted it for, to be pitched to Ricky Skaggs. And Billy was working at CBS in the day, and then he would come to the Gallico office in the afternoon because he was working in both places. He's running a label, and then he's over at the publishing company. And we gave the tape to Billy and just said, hey, if you get a chance to get this into the Ricky Skaggs camp, it would be awesome. And uh, he came back that afternoon, and he, you know, I kind of was hoping he did. And he just kind of, well, I didn't see Ricky. Like, yeah, and he goes, but Ray Charles wants to cut it. <laughs> I was like, like, What? And uh, he said, but he wants it to be a duet because this album was an album of duets. And, and he had one female artist that was going to be on it. It was Janie Fricky. And he said, can you guys make it a, you know, a duet with a female? And I'm like, do you need this like one minute from now? We'll go get this done. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's crazy. And um, what a time that was, Paul, because even Billy had me running tapes to Ray Charles at the Spence Manor across from BMI, like when they were going through songs and stuff. Just to be around that, that's one of those you can't plan it. Just take the blessing and and be amazed the rest of your life as to how in the world was I going to be that fortunate. But it was such a blessing. Such a blessing. So you got to meet Ray Charles. Oh, yes. And that is... You know, like being around a lot of artists because of my father and, and just the industry, being around a lot of celebrities, it's, I mean, that's all a blessing. But I will say that that's the one where I probably felt like I was almost kind of speechless because when I first met him, Billy called me in to meet Ray and he said, Ray, this is Shelby Kennedy, one of the writers on Who Cares? And then Ray began to thank me for the song. And I thought, this is so wrong that this guy is thanking me for something. I'm like, and it really was kind of like, what do you say when you know all you've got is your words for this man? But anyways, that was something. That was something for sure. Yeah. Wow. I like that song a lot. 
Well, thank you for that. I, I appreciate you knowing it. It's 1984. The one thing that cracked me, I'm, I'm working at Lyric Street later on, Paul, and a guy that was, uh, he was going through Missouri and he walked into the office. He said, man, I was going through Missouri and I saw this. And he said, I think you might want to have this. And he, he held out an eight track of the album. And I'm like, you're kidding. I made an eight track. I was like, it had to be the last one they manufactured. It was 1984, and I was like, this is funny. <laughs> but uh, So I've got an eight-track of it. How's that? <laughs> well, another song that you co-wrote would be the one recorded by Reba McIntyre, I'm a Survivor, which was also the theme song to the show Reba. Yeah, that's and I will always give the co-writer credit at this thing. I love Philip White, co-writer. Just so you know, he wrote Rascal Flats. I'm moving on. Philip, I love him. He's like 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 a brother. The one thing that was great about Philip, when I told him, I said, you know what? I kind of want to get back to writing a little bit. I said, would you be game? You know, and he was like, yeah. And I said, well, I know the wheels be a little rusty, but we got together and wrote, oh, maybe five or six. And, and that was in, in the batch. And uh, I couldn't have picked a better person to have a hit with. I love Philip White. And the the other thing, sentimental, as you know, my father, you know, was at Mercury when they gave Reba her first deal. So it's almost like this full circle, you know, it came back. Now, the interesting thing about that song is my wife used to be roommates with somebody that worked for Reba and, and Cindy Owens, her name, and she did something that was kind of cool. We, we had it on hold for Martina McBride. It came off hold. Gave it to Cindy Owen. Reba was up in New York doing Annie Get Your Guns. Get Your Gun on Broadway. And Cindy overnighted it on Friday. So Reba heard it on Saturday. Reba got word to me to leave it in Tony Brown that produced that record. Leave it in his mailbox on Sunday because Monday they were going to cut it. And it bumped the song that they were going in the studio to cut. So that song was pitched, heard, held cut in like three days <laughs> and, and that doesn't happen and again you cannot plan that i promise you you can't plan that that was all a blessing and then the television show we didn't even know about and it was and they were doing the pilot for it and um that just you know and it also was a whirlpool habitat for humanity television campaign back then too so it was one of those things that again paul you can't plan it you're just glad that you were a part of it you know, what a blessing that was. What did you think of Reba's interpretation? Oh, she's, oh gosh, she, she could burp and I'll be happy. I mean, she's awesome. She's, no, her interpretation, that's her. That's her will. She's always had the strong, you know, female. She does have a survivor, you know, disposition in everything she does. She's incredible. And still today, I don't, she defies the years. She's as good as she was when she got her deal way back. So her interpretation was great. I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine somebody else doing it. You know, but it's so sentimental for several reasons. Dad giving her the deal, all of that was great to have a hit with her and have a hit with Philip White. It was great. I'm hoping you can tell the listeners also about a couple of songs that you had cut by Mel McDaniel, the late Mel McDaniel. How did they come to be? 
Well, now my father was producing him, and there was probably a little of an inside track in a couple of ways. Number one, I was the biggest Mel McDaniel fan. I loved his singing, and and part of it was, and I was doing backgrounds on his albums. I was singing harmonies on his stuff, and it seemed to be a a good texture combination. So I really kind of was into what he was into. So it was easier to target him, if you will. So that's kind of how those those came to be. Uh, one thing about doing backgrounds, you know, and this is something I admire about my father is he didn't use me for doing backgrounds on sessions early on so much. As I was doing them for other people before he could. And I get it because it would have looked like he's doing this because it's his son, you know. But I do know other people were finally recommending he used me for stuff, I think, before he really could and and could with without people complaining because I was I was doing a bunch of background singings or background singing around town, too. So but to sing with Mel was something that was very it felt natural to me just because the texture of his voice, his phrase and felt like I was kind of had him really close to what I would want to be if I was an artist. It was kind of like what Mel was. Okay, now this is very specific. Uh, it's it's a you're, you're scaring me. <laughs> in doing research for this interview, I found a song that was recorded by Jimmy Buckley. The title: "Do you mind if I step into your dreams?" Oh wow, Paul, you're good on research. You know what? <laughs> I haven't I haven't heard it. You wrote it, correct? Yes, but I have not heard that. It was cut by the Cannons on Mercury originally, and I wrote it with a buddy of mine, Anthony Von Dolan. I'm serious. I I have not heard that. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me you enjoyed it. (laughs) Yeah, that's why I wanted to ask about it, and I just thought, that's happened a few times when I've interviewed songwriters where they've said, "Uh, yeah, I did write that, don't know it, the version you're talking about. But (laughs) this one- uh, an, an Irish country singer named Jimmy Buckley. Wow. I've got to hear it. And I just love that you, the two things you said, Irish and country, I, you know, <laughs> I got to check that out. So, yeah, now that I do remember right now with a buddy of mine, Anthony Von Dolan, and he's got, we have quite a history too. And this goes back to when we got out of college from Belmont University. He went to work with Tim Dubois and Tim would later start Arista Nashville. And Anthony was his A&R guy. And then when I went to ASCAP from, I was at Al Gallico Music, then I went to the Music Mill, then I went, ended up at ASCAP. But it really worked out neat that I was able to play Alan Jackson for Tim Dubois, you know, that Anthony kind of helped set all that up, which basically, you know, there's the beginning of Arista Nashville right there. And, uh, but Anthony's the guy I wrote that song with because we were writing a few things. But that that's I'll have to tell him we got us a cut on Jimmy Buckley. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the nicest person you've met in the music business? Wow. There's a few. That, I mean, and I'm going to leave people out. and You know, people could get upset. But I think writers like Alan Shamblin, uh, Tim Menzies is incredible. 
and then I've got, you know, guys that are like brothers to me. If it's, you know, it could be a Jimmy Metz, uh, which is more executive like, and Chris Oglesby is like a brother and he's one of those that I could, I could give you a long list. It's a real short list to think of who's not, and I, we're not going to talk about them, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, you know, artists that you hear like Steve, you know, Steve Warner and, and, and Brian White, you know, as nice as they can be there, you know, humility is abundant. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people. I'm leaving people out, but there's, I've got way too many people to leave out to, to try to really, I feel guilty. I, I haven't mentioned a bunch more, but there's a lot. <laughs> well, what misconceptions do you think there are about the music business? Um, I think that it's uh, exclusive, Maybe a lot of people think you got to be in a clique. Uh, and I think that is definitely wrong. I do think at least this music center that we're talking about in Nashville, it's very family oriented in how it operates. And that probably can tell you why probably works a lot for, you know, me because, you know, growing up in a family all about music I think it could be easy to grow up all about music and end up in a family, you know, and that's what the business is. It's like this industry, it's family uh, because everybody shares the music bloodline for that family. So it's not really as exclusive as people think it is. People do like to work with who they know, you know, but it's very family oriented. When people realize that, I think it kind of helps them navigate a little bit because if, if, uh, if you think everybody's a stranger, it's hard to, it's really hard to get comfortable to maneuver. Um, and, and if you just remember everybody's like family, it's amazing. You don't, you know, you're careful about what you do because you know this is a high school you can't graduate from. So if you make enemies, uh-oh, you know, it's you don't want to make enemies. Uh, your family is your family, so you need to get along, you know. But it's not as exclusive as everybody thinks it is. Hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying that relationships are very important in this business. Absolutely. Yeah, that's and that's it. And that's really job one is relationships. Again, people love to work with who they they like and who they know. And that's part of, you know, everything that I'm telling you about my past. It's it, it's all relationships. You know, what's funny at the end of the day. Yeah, it's a business, so people have to make money. But you know, our currency is the stories we share with each other. That's really hmm. what we're going to be talking. We're not going to talk about how much did you make off of that hit. Uh, nobody's asked that at all. <laughs> it's like, who'd you write that with, and where were you when you, it's the conversation we're having, Paul? We haven't talked about money. We're not going to. <laughs> it's about stories. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best part of this whole deal. Yeah. Would you say that there's a certain characteristic or a certain element that you notice among people who are successful in the music business? Yeah, I think they're workers. I think they're determined. I think they are they they have to get along with people. I know one thing that's kind of interesting. I I think that it's funny like when I talk to managers or you know if you talk to publishers, you talk to the professional executives and you hope that none of them are outworking the talent that they have signed or they're working with. And it's, it's usually the people that show up 
meaning the artist or the writer that shows up like, hey, I need you to, you know, direct me. And, and there's a difference in directing somebody and carrying them. And we don't need to carry, but you can't. And I think that what most, you know, professional, you know, successful people have in common is they're, they're determined and they're not looking for somebody to carry them. They're just looking for somebody to cheer them on and mm. notice, you know, that's what most people need. And I know this is kind of terrible to say, but also determination doesn't make up for a lack of talent. I mean, you know, there has to be, people have to be in the right area for what they, they do. But anyways, yeah, I, you know, I feel like they pretty much have a determination and they realize the importance of relationships because everybody has to have a brain trust in order to get something done. So everybody successful has got a brain trust and determination. Now, at the top of the interview, I was mentioning that you're the Vice President of Entertainment Relations for TuneCore. Just tell the listeners out there, what exactly is TuneCore? Okay, well, TuneCore is, I mean, it's a blessing. That's the first thing. TuneCore is, for most people, it's digital distribution. It's how artists of today or independent artists of today can get their music into iTunes or Spotify or Google, Amazon, Deezer. It's like all the digital stores. TuneCore sends that music out, you know, for people and they can reach the world. And, and the affordability of it has just totally changed from what it used to be. The thing that's great about TuneCore is it doesn't take any of the sales revenue or any of the ownership rights away from the people that use TuneCore. So it's it's like a flat fee subscription. And I'm not lying, Paul, when I say this. You could skip a meal and put out a record. <laughs> and that's what it would cost you, you know. So it's a blessing right now because all the artists of today that are in development, they're using TuneCore. And, and then some people are finding out they don't need a major record deal. They just need TuneCore. And then there's people coming out of major record deals that, well, they need TuneCore. And so we're we're able to serve every kind of artist out there. And it's just, it helps people make their living and have their careers, you know. Again, I think back, you know, if we want to rewind 15 years ago or 20 years ago, if you told people you had a record deal, the first question would be, who's got distribution? You know, they just want to know, are you going to be in the brick and mortar stores? And now there's less brick and mortar stores. It's not about that. So that question almost doesn't come up so much anymore it's it's more about okay what are you doing with your social networking and you know it's 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 going to be things like that that are the concerns of today because again unique deserves uniques so there's not one blueprint but I'll, I'll say this paul if i could for everybody listening to when you think of the term music business in in my past you think of just the word music Okay, that's where we, we've got to create this song. What's the instrumentation? What's the arrangement? How are we going to mix this? That's all the creative part. And then there was the business part of music business. And it was like, okay, how do we exploit that music? How do we monetize that music? Well, we've entered this era to where the business part of music business, it has to be just as, if not more creative than the music part. <laughs> and and what I tell people, this is the best way I can describe it, is, it's like writing a song. A songwriter is not going to start writing the song until they, first of all, see what's missing. 
I mean, the first question you ask yourself when you're writing a song before you even start is like, huh, nobody's written this or nobody's written this like this. You, you see this void and explaining that to some people, it kind of baffles them. But it's like you don't start until it's not there. You know, that's what it is for writing a song, being creative. Well, in the business chair, I think now it's about sitting in the business chair and the first question being, has anybody done this? Or has anybody done this like this? It's the same skill set, but it's from the business chair. And I think the thing that I love about the times that we're living in now, the creative animal is perfectly suited for the business chair because we've got to go where we're not. We've got to go do things that's not common. You know, it's not about business as usual. It's about business as unusual. <laughs> and And that's where I think, and if you think about it, the history, and Lord knows you know the history, that's kind of how this whole thing started. It was these creative guys doing business. And I think we're getting back there. So it's exciting for me. But TuneCore is that tool that allows that animal to get in that business chair out of the creative chair. And it's like, okay, great. Uh, distribution, that's not an issue. Now it's about being creative with everything you do. And we could talk about that for days as far as what the industry's turned into. It's it's changing, changing rapidly. But TuneCore is, is good for the haul, the long haul. So you're optimistic about the future of the music business. I am. And and part of it too, it's like the traditional, you know, things that we think about where the music I'm going to say something, too, and this almost sounds blasphemous, but this is what I've been saying recently. I'm a songwriter, so I can say this. Here in Nashville, everybody uses that phrase. It all begins with a song. And and I, uh, you know, as a songwriter, I want to beat my chest and throw my hands up and say, that's right, we're, we're making all this happen. But the truth is, and I was having this conversation with my father about a year and a half ago. I said, the truth is, I think it's it's half it's halfway true. I said, it all begins with a song, but it better end with a record. I said, I've never bought a song before in my life. <laughs> I buy records. I like the tracks. I like the groove. I want that feel. I, you know, it's, it's part of it, but I, I buy records. And, and then I think I got a little more wise, or at least I hope so. And I tell people, do not let me know if I haven't gotten wise. But as I get older, <laughs> I said, here's, here's what I think it really is. And this is what I've known as a little kid, a little kid listening to my dad with Roger Miller stuff or, or the Statlers or Tom T. And it's the thing. This is what I've known as a little kid is right now, Paul, if I asked you where the money is for the artist in today's industry, you would probably say it's in selling tickets. Right. And that's kind of, that's what it's turned in, turning into right now. And I said, so everybody's in line to buy a ticket. And I said, now are they buying a ticket to hear the song they already know? And I don't, I don't think that's right. Are they buying a ticket? For the album, no. The album might have something to do with why they're they're buying a ticket, you know. But they're really buying what's on stage. That's what they're buying. I've known it since I was a little kid. That's why we bought, you know, I bought the Beatles. I was buying them, you know. And uh, I think that the the songs don't make the artist. I think the artist makes the songs, you know. And anyways, I just think we're in this period right now to where I think it all begins with the artist. It's a great song. 
And I think we have, have it backwards sometimes because in an industry, we think if we can write the song, we can make the record, which can make that act. And the truth is, you can't make that act. You can only discover it, elevate it, surround it, support it. And I think that that's what is more revealing to me now in today's industry is we're selling artists. We're not selling songs or records. Now, I'm not belittling those. Great song, great record. You know, the great artist deserves those. But again, there's that other thing that we've heard before where people say a hit song doesn't care who sings it. I say, yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) It does. So anyways, just a crash in some of my philosophy, how I see things right now, but I'm excited now because it is, it's about the talent. It's the same reason I go see a movie. Do I need to know the plot? Do I need to know the, you know, everything about it? No, all you have to tell me is Duvall's in it and I'm there. You know, it's like, it's, it's about, it's about the talent, I think sometimes. And right now I think it really is about the talent. Well, what is on the horizon for Shelby Kennedy? Is there anything you're planning for the near future? Well, I don't want to box myself in a corner, Paul, but you know, one thing I am, one thing I am doing right now is I'm, I'm working on a book, but it's not a who I've worked with book like a lot of people do. It's metaphors and analogies because I've spent years trying to explain the business to people. And um, I'm thinking it's, it's probably a good way to get people to understand that haven't had enough experience, you know, to, to get a feel for how the industry really works. So, um, kind of working on that. There's, I'm not happy unless I'm creating something. The one thing I love about working at TuneCore, we get, we've got a great CEO too. I mean, he's, he's awesome, but I'm in a place where we can be creative too. And I'm not happy unless we are. And it doesn't matter which chair I'm in, as long as I can be creative, I'm going to be, I'm going to be happy. And, uh, and I think I will find out where it ends up. Again, I can't plan everything, and I don't want to. Some divine intervention's got to happen, but I've got to be accountable to the tools I've been given. Well, what is the best thing about being Shelby Kennedy? Talking to Paul today, I guess. No, it's, you know, it's, that's a, that's a, I don't know how to answer that question. I think just to have a chance to help people. Again, best thing I'm probably thinking sometimes I feel like I'm the oldest young executive or I'm the youngest old executive, but whatever I am, the best part I think is being able to find value in that for somebody else to navigate what they're doing again. And I don't know if you've played sports, but it's like when you're on the field, you know, a position. And you know what you have to do in your position. But if you're a coach on the sidelines or in the press box, wait a minute. You can see a lot different from that vantage point. And you can help people play better if you can see just from the sidelines or or above. And that's I think I've gotten in that place where I can kind of say, hey, you need to to do B instead of A and you're going to score. You know, that's probably the best part right now, or at least I'm hoping so, helping people figure out what's the best thing they can do. I always like to close my interviews by giving the guest the stage. You can just go anywhere you want. Just just take the microphone. What would you say to anybody who's tuned in? 
Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks, Paul, again. Let me, um, I'll, t- I'll tell you this. There, there was a Belmont student that was doing an interview with me, and they asked that question, like, how do you define success? And that's a funny question everybody asks, and there's never really a good answer for that. But this one day, I'm like, wait, I've got, I've got this. And they said, what? I said, and this, is, this will be what I want to say to everybody. God gave us all a toolbox. And I've got different tools and gifts in mine, and you've got different tools and gifts in yours. And I may have a hammer, you may have a sledgehammer, somebody else may have a jackhammer. And, you know, at some point, somebody needs a picture hung on the wall. Well, I suggest you not use the jackhammer or the sledgehammer. And it's knowing when to use your tools. But the definition of success will be when we open up our toolbox and we see all our tools and we know that we have picked them all up and used them. I'm not saying everything you know was incredible, but I don't know why some people have gifts that they never pay attention to. So if somebody comes in and they say, "Hey, I sing," doesn't mean you're an artist, you know, but you're supposed to be singing, doing, using that voice somewhere, you know, or you write, you need to do it somewhere. You, you know, there. So I'm thinking that if everybody wants to be successful. And this is kind of back to the Billy Sherrill, you know, if there's, if, you know, if you decide exactly what you want to do, there's a whole lot you will not. I think that if you have all these tools, you're supposed to use them. Now, you may back up and say, hey, I built a, a birdhouse. Or you may back up and say, wow, this was a house. Oh, no, wow, this was a building. This was, you don't know what you're building. Just hammer, screw, saw, what, you know, whatever tools that you have use them and you will end up doing what you were made to do. How's that? I like it. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. But that's what I hope everybody realizes is we we're all building something unique. Just pay attention to your gifts, pay attention to every one of them. Would it be possible for you to define Shelby Kennedy? Oh man, that's, is that for me to define or is that for you and, <laughs> and everybody that I come into contact with and, and my creator, you know, so I don't, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, that's, that's a tough question because some people see themselves worse than they are or better than they are, but who really sees themselves exactly as they are? <laughs> I don't know. That's, Paul, you ask tough questions. I noticed that about you. I'm glad I got this far until we hit this one. Um, <laughs> but that's that's tough. I don't, you know, I really don't know if I can define me. I just I can, I can tell you my heart wants to help others, and I'm I am thankful. I am blessed, and I you know I pray that that I can help people figure out the tools and how to use them. But that's, I don't know if that's defining me, but I'm defining my desires. Yeah. That's what I hope I do. Yeah. Well, Shelby Kennedy, thank you very, very much for giving so generously of your time. Thank you very much for this interview. Well, Paul, thank you for the time and thank you for all you're doing because I think it's important that people, you know, really get a good look behind the curtain And uh, I appreciate all you're doing, and thank you for your time today. It's great. It's my pleasure. All right. All right, sir.
Well, have a good one. I'll be listening to a lot more from you. I just won't be involved in the discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when the book comes out. Have a good one, Paul. (laughs) There you go. Thanks, Paul. You take it easy. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Paul Leslie. Thanks for listening. Be good. <laughs>